to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just busts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop at goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Last year, Ireland were 27-0 up against Wales after 28 minutes. I was in Cardiff and before a string of uh, Welsh legends retired before the World Cup and since the World Cup. Make, you, make me the argument that it's not going to happen again like that. I don't the, know if you can. No, the only argument that I have is uh, superstition. Um, and... And f- fear of um, sounding presumptuous, like uh, because I would fucking hate uh, for Wales to take us to the wire and be like Wales, especially, and to be proved wrong, especially two things I don't like. Um, I think that we're a lot better than Wales. I was, uh, I was, I was calling to mind early this morning. I was walking in and I was texting you the 2002 game that we played against them in Lansdowne Road, old Lansdowne Road. Uh, I was in the Havelock Square end for that. And I was, was surrounded by loads of Welsh fans. Eddie O'Sullivan was the coach. The Wales were wearing black shorts and we thumped them 54-10. Um, and the Welsh fans all around me kept on really moaning about how Ireland were cheating all the time. It's noticeable the Welsh fans still call every every time a single <laughs> referee decision goes against them, they just chant, cheat, 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 cheat. But that game, we hammered them. And I couldn't remember the score uh, this morning. I looked it up and I was like, oh, 50. Oh, we won't. We won't beat them by a margin of 44 points. Um, I hadn't, re- I remembered we hammered them. I hadn't remembered. It was like, fuck, 44 point margin. I don't think that's achievable. But the bookies have us a half that plus twenty two, and I'm not like I'm not a big gambling man, but I do. They're so often right. There's so much like I I play so much <laughs> virtue in being correct. <laughs> uh, so and they are so often right. I was thinking I, but I think we, I think we, and and again I hate being proved wrong, but I think we could beat them by more than that. Um, but then again, I expected England to beat them by more than I thought. I was texting some, some English friends of mine before that game, and I thought, like, England should hose Wales in, uh, in Twickenham by... I thought I thought margin would be 25 points, and Wales have only lost by one point and two points in this, so I do not know if, if I have... You know, the two options are underestimate Wales, overestimate their opponents, or are we looking at a Welsh team that is playing on fear and adrenaline, or are we looking at a Welsh team that is being really well motivated by Warren Gatland, which might be the same as the last point, fear and adrenaline, or are Wales, are the other teams sort of taking Wales lightly and not playing not playing with particular vigour or verve, or are the other two teams not that good? Now, we'll know 
after because Ireland are a really good, like Ireland are an excellent team, really consistent team. So, um, but Welsh fans and Irish fans who are you know interested in, in Welsh rugby will will have a much better picture of where Wales stand after this game. I don't think that this is a good Welsh team. I don't think that Gatland has found the same caliber of players he found in. February, June of 2011, when he unearthed Faletau, amongst others, um, and got them into the World Cup team really quickly. I don't think these guys are the same uh, caliber of players as those. Um, so I think Ireland will win quite handsomely. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, think we, I think one of our strap lines and... One of the social media pods, or perhaps the blog, is that it's uh, a roundtable for rugby obsessive make terrible predictions. So, not that we make that many predictions, but we're normally I'll wrong. Be, I'll be, I'll be sort of, I'll be quite particular, and I, I think that Wales will come out swinging. I think they need a few breaks, but I think it'll be quite close for about an hour, and I expect Ireland to pull away in the last twenty minutes, um, and. Like I said, that that's very particular, and there's any you know there's there's always a few scenarios that can play out. Um, I also expect Ireland to target uh, Raffel and, and Wainwright as tacklers, so I think that Ireland will look to run at them an awful lot. So whoever they're defending, whether Ireland need to play off nine and and target those guys, which seems to be the most obvious way of doing it. I think that they'll try to tie up Raffel because. He's really good as a, as a jackler. Wainwright's another guy who's a threat. Um, and just if, if Ireland keep those guys out of the Wales defensive effort, then it's a big plus for Ireland. Now, I mean, the other thing is that, like, Ireland's line-out has been absolutely perfect so far. Um, and it's, it's proved the foundation for what the team does. If Wales manage to disrupt or spoil that line-out, it'll be a big momentum stop for Ireland. So again, I think when you sort of say, like, Wales need to get some of the breaks, that'll be some of the breaks that they'd need to get, is that they'd need to counter Ireland's line-out. The weakness in Ireland is there's very little pace across the back line. And if Kieran Frawley is going to start at 15 um, in place of Hugo Keenan, which seems almost certain at the time of recording, then there's going to be even less pace in the Irish back line. Like, it's going to be possibly the slowest back line there's ever been. Um... Whereas, like, Wales have Rio Dyer. Now, they, they don't have Lewis Reed Samish, which is which is a loss, but Rio Dyer is quick. Um, and, you know, that, that, that pace could earn them tries. But, like, Ireland are so well-resourced. Uh, sorry, not so well-resourced. Ireland are so well-prepared and so accustomed to winning and have an awful lot of confidence in themselves that... I got Robert Kitson's book at Christmas time and, you know, I've read a few chapters and one of the chapters is an interview with Will Carling, but I'm, I'm just going to read out what he says. And Will Carling was the captain of the last team to do back-to-back Grand Slams in 91-92. And what he says is, it's really about understanding how you behave before a game in terms of preparation, how you make sure you are as prepared as possible for everything they might throw at you. And also what systems you have in place for dealing with things during a game. That's the key bit. 
who's watching what's happening, how is that being fed back, how are people reacting to it. That's a key part of a successful team. You don't want to be waiting for the coaches to feed on the messages. You've got to work it out yourselves. It's about getting yourself organized and appointing the right people to talk about the right stuff. It's also about understanding the whole emotional wave. In terms of tournaments, you've got to get up to the right pitch and then allow players to come down afterwards. In a tournament, that's hard. Coaches want to get on, but guys have to recover before you can get them back up again. Having the confidence to allow that, it's a question of balance. Of coaches and players being in sync. You don't want to miss the chance to be really well prepared, but you don't want to overdo it so guys just become knackered. It's a tough one. And like when I read, it was only after watching the first two games of this Six Nations that I thought to myself, Jesus, like that's pretty much Randy Farrell has this Irish team. They're, they're so confident in what they're trying to do. They played very differently against the Italians. They didn't make very many line breaks. Like I suppose the ones that stick in mind are the Jack Crowley inspired ones, but... Like, an awful lot of the time, the Italians dealt comfortably with Ireland's backline attack, tackled very well, were well-spaced in defence, defended well, and yet still lost 36-0 because uh, their line-out was crap, their kicking game is limited, Ireland's line-out was very strong, and Ireland were able to establish field position, um, get themselves mauling opportunities, and just batter their way over the line. So... Is that going to be the same against Wales? Ireland won't play the same way against Wales as they played against the Italians. And the difference is, like, the Irish bench is absolute quality. And Ireland are at home, and Ireland expect to win, and they're not going to get rattled by Wales. Like, they have that problem-solving mentality. There's an awful lot of confidence in the Irish setup, whereas this Welsh team, as as young and game as they appear to be, have lost two matches. Now, they've, they've lost them by narrow margins, but like they're, they're not accustomed to winning. And I, th- I think they're just basically going to tighten up and run out of quality after, after I suspect, giving Ireland a bit of a rattle. Okay. That quote set off a couple of things in my head about um, the selection uh, two weeks ago against Italy. The thing about letting players come down um, and, and before they come back up, he made a lot of changes last week and he said a lot of them were for small knocks and he kind of got the impression that maybe he could have picked Bundy if it was a it was a it was a crunch game or something like that. I thought the other really noticeable one was that one game into his his uh, captaincy he was able to go with Farrell has such uh, authority he was able to go oh Pete's got a small knock and they're going to play like uh, Baird at number six and start Caelan uh, Doris at number seven and make Caelan Doris the, the like, default captain as well. Um, I think because Peter O'Mahony is such experienced that like he's able, he's able after one game to be sort of like, oh, we don't have to make you an automatic pick. You're the, he's like the, the, the captain of the, of the squad almost. Not that he didn't have a knocker or something else last, last week. But again, I imagine he would have been able to play if it was a World Cup quarterfinal last week. Quarterfinal. Oh. <laughs> um, so I thought I thought I thought that was those were the interesting selections. I thought so. Whenever Wales club sides play, the thing they always try and do way more aggressively than Leinster, who the team I typically watch them play against, is jackal. And um, they always have lads who are I think good at that. And I thought that in the second half of our game, Italy did actually disrupt quite a lot of our uh, rook ball. I felt like it's more like, not that they jackled it a lot, but there was a lot of loose ball at the back of rooks uh, in the second half of that game. Um, I feel like that could be 
that that'd be an avenue I would suspect that Wales would um would be an avenue of disruption for them. Avenue of disruption, beautiful. What a turn of phrase. Um and I guess that feeds into what you're saying about Rafflin and Wainwright being the ones who make the first tackles and, and running at them. Yeah, Raffle was the man in the match. Um like he was the best player in the pitch for for either team in the England Wales game. And he is like he's not unique in, in how well he anticipates where he has a chance of going for the ball and he does go for the ball a lot on on like as a jackal. But he's like he's excellent at it. You know, he is excellent. So what you've said there is like make him make tackles, keep him on the ground. Like anybody who's the second man in bar him is going to be worse than him. Um the, the thing I, I said to you this morning, or I texted you this morning, was that if if Gatland was coaching Ireland, he would bomb Winnet and run a Costello. Um Winnet because he's really small, Nash is a Nash is a excellent kick chaser like the standout one was really recent in memory is his great try against Toulon uh, Lowe is also really good in the air both of them like, Nash isn't huge but he still dwarfs Winnet who is tiny and then Costello Costello uh, is an out half who like neither of the Welsh out halves look like professional athletes I not not a slight in their um it's not a slight on their uh, like application to physical training or whatever but like you look at them and you're going like these guys they are they are small and not strong looking so my feeling was that Ireland uh, like our they have a really together team who can play different ways and that we could go after like a quite basic first 15 20 minutes a quarter of doing this and then going now we've shown them this they think we're going to do it all day let's do what what we normally do so they'll move things Wales might be tempted to move things around to accommodate that then we'd start doing something else uh, I think that we have that I'd be confident that we have that ability to change uh, how we how we play within within a half before getting into half time before uh, the coach is directing it. Um, and uh, it, that goes back to something which I've always sort of railed against when people people <laughs> complain that there's no plan B. Well, no plan B means that you lost the game. Like, there's loads of plans in rugby. There's loads of plans that teams play. Like Each plan is basically tactically how you play. Uh, so I think that we could see... I think we could see like plan B within one half, you know, and not out of weakness, not out of plan A isn't working. It's like, here's plan A, now here's plan B. Now we might do a bit of A, and then we might go a bit of C. Um, I, the more so because this Welsh side is inexperienced, and I don't think that they will be able to problem solve as well as an experienced team will be. And Ireland are difficult to beat. Like we saw that during the World Cup where the All Blacks got a big start and like it came down to being one score game at the end. Well, sorry, one score game. It came down, if Ireland had scored a try, they could have won. Ireland obviously beat South Africa. Um, I've won a test series in New Zealand. Like all, all the things that are, are sort of well known are the Grand Slam champions and 
like that's why you'd have to think Ireland are going to win by double figures. Um, but it's it's exciting like to have a like to have a test coming up on a Saturday where it's it's a new look Welsh team like it's it's young it's it's um fearless in a way um because like they they don't really have the baggage now they don't have the experience either so look it could be that Ireland get a really good start get out the gate and just take them apart but I kind of just suspect that Wales have a bit of momentum about them that means it, it'll be close for a while. I didn't see very much of the Ireland or the England versus Wales game um, as I was traveling. Uh, I did see the to the denouement on my phone as I was traveling, and Wales like a desperation to to tr- to try and create something with, you know, essentially 40 seconds, 50 seconds on the clock. And they had nothing against that English team. No, England, by the end, looked well-organized and their defense looked very dominant. Uh, that hadn't been the, this case all the way through the game. I watched both games. I was really looking forward to both games and sort of booked myself a Six Nations weekend, like spa weekend. <laughs> uh, like, unfortunately, I got, like, fucking Legionnaires disease from those two games. They were shit. Uh, there was a good, say, 25 minutes of France-Scotland. The first 25 minutes was was exciting. The game degenerated. Uh, and, uh, I put a lot of... like I, I, put, I put most of the blame of that on, on Finn Russell um, for choosing to, to, like, saying that you can't do this. You, you have to, like, there are so few options. To, like, Finn Russell made those options for himself and decided, like, that's been a big feature of Van Grand's coaching in Bath. And Finn Russell decided to take on that DuPont rule of uh, imaginary rabbit ears around that. Um, so Scotland weren't in a strong position and decided then to fuck around with that nonsense. Wales-England was a poor quality game. I thought that the, the Kiwi ref who I hadn't seen ref in an international game before, I thought he rode England at home. He gave, in my opinion, a very soft penalty try to Wales. There was a strange, probably correct call against George Ford for moving sideways during his uh, conversion. conversion um, which, which got blocked down. It was definitely a sideways movement, not a forward movement. So... You know, I think what I've seen is that the moment you make any movement after you've paused, it's, it counts as your run up. And the ref was uh, the ref was fucking delighted to give it. So Wales are in the position of being the least penalised team after two rounds, and with a tiny penalty count over two matches, they've only conceded nine penalties. I think that conceding four and a half penalties a match is a great way to play, but I don't think. You can bank on it. Like uh, Ireland have conceded, I think two and a half times as many penalties while handsomely winning their two games. So it's Ireland's penalty counts. A lot of them go against Porter, like and McCarthy. Yeah, like half of them are against Porter and McCarthy. Um. So if I, I'm I'm not sure why Wales give away so few penalties. I, I felt that uh, Ben O'Keefe 
looked at the match at halftime, it was 20-0 to Scotland. Wales are playing it at home. I thought, like, Scotland lost the heads, but they were also the only side getting reft. And it's, I think Wales have been on the, they've been on the good side of referees without, like, while being a losing team, which is sort of unusual. So I think that's something which has helped them more than has been mentioned. And I don't think, uh, like, I can't see them only conceding five penalties against Ireland over the course of 80 minutes. Like, five penalties is fucking nothing. You know, eight penalties is low. Nine penalties is still relatively low. So, uh, I sort of sidebarred myself there. And I don't know how to get out of it. The other game that weekend was Ireland-Italy. I watched it in, in sort of backwards. I watched the second half and then I got to watch the first half. And having seen the results and the kind of knowing how... I guess it would have felt on a Sunday afternoon as you kind of beat a listless Italy team. When I watched the first half, I was like, she's really good. Like, I was like, a, and then for whatever cribbing and then counter cribbing about Jack Crowley, I was like, Jack Crowley was fucking deadly in that half. He was like, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised to sort of see how that second half had, you know, what had led up to it. Yeah, that's interesting because I've, I find myself very similar to you. Oftentimes, if I've been to a match and I thought like, uh, that was like, that was, you know, okay, better than average, but not great performance. Then go back and watch and go, oh, we were pretty good. You know, happy with that. And I, I thought, I thought the same. Um, but uh, it was like, it was a Sunday afternoon uh, a Sunday afternoon game against Italy and the Lansdowne Road crowd disgraced themselves. <laughs> oh, getting up and down for pines. It was a Sunday afternoon game against Italy, and it was like Italy didn't. They managed a very early penalty scoring chance, which which was a shank from Garbisi. They didn't score any points after that. They knocked on the ball an awful lot, like way more than uh, I expected at test level and uh, we were really efficient in putting them away three tries in either half yeah like it was it was a kind of a bloodless win um, and I mean that from the surgical precision maybe surgery isn't the right way it was a constricting win like it was a it was a smothering it was a boa constrictor of a win it like I, I said earlier on, it was it was um, pretty enlivened by flourishes from Crowley. Um, like, I, how many times did Crowley... Crowley touches the ball seven times and scores on a seventh time with the receipt in, in that move. But it starts off with Italy kicking it too far to Hugo Keenan, Hugo Keenan tapping it to himself and outpacing the Italian... Uh, defence who just aren't aware and then Ireland have gone from defending to attacking but like what struck me about it was Ireland kicked the ball a lot but kicked well um, but sort of knew like the Italian kicking game is very poor quite happy to pick it to Ioanni who doesn't have any kicking game he's just going to run everything back um, Italian kicks were too far Ireland were happy to play with the ball in their own half they didn't really feel like they were going to get put under pressure um, they felt that at, at some stage they they just established territorial domination, which they did and scored those pick and jam and mall tries. Um, and like the, the Italians were 
kind of asphyxiated and punch drunk really um that sounds like a mixed metaphor they were really they were sort of choked out and they just didn't have the concentration then to attack because Ireland were relentless with them Ireland came off the line very well in um at sort of selected times and those selected times I thought were when the Italians didn't have anybody at the back so they might have had a pot of three but there was like the guy wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna do anything else like he was he was gonna take it up and run and Ireland bombed up on those particular guys so you know when the Italians played a pot of three off nine without somebody at the back Ireland bombed up and hit them so again it's it's just like the clarity of how Ireland play at matches and how well able that they are to execute on what looks like they've planned to do beforehand is is astounding. So that's why it's really difficult to see them being beaten. Like I can see Wales playing well, um, particularly if they get a bit of a win behind them. But like it's so hard to see Ireland being beaten because, um, like they're they're just so tuned into it. Like I. It's hard to see the team being sort of freaked out. Now, the other thing that we said, but I think it's worth highlighting, is there was quite a few changes, um, and the team didn't miss a beat. But it, it's actually one of those characteristics of Andy Farrell's selection is that he's he's built up a fairly good squad now. Well, I say like it is a very good squad. Like there's there's a lot of guys in a full choice twenty three that can come off the bench that have like proper Test rugby experience that they've. They've been involved in a lot of match day squads. They've been involved in a lot of camps where they've prepped. They've played a good amount of test match minutes. And they're not phased by it. They have a lot of confidence, a lot of familiarity with their teammates. Uh, they've had big days together. And they trust each other. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the points that Carling refers to that you want in a team, uh, Farrell has created with um, his selection, his coaching, the mental preparation, the the sort of players that he has. So it was, but like I said, it was it was a bloodless win. It was it was a constriction of the Italian team, who, who like I said, defended very well, but you know just just couldn't really lay a hand on Ireland properly. I think it's funny um, winning the big game against France first up. Really gives um, each other game, particularly having three home games. You know, I feel like a, a step on the way. Not to count any of those steps before they're hatched or anything like that, but um, like I, I don't know. It certainly it, it gives me an, an added excitement about this Wales game. Um, I mean, I, I love going to Six Nations games. Full stop. I love going to Wales games. It's always fun to beat Wales, no matter if they're if they're good or bad. It's always fun. But the fact that um, there's a potential Grand Slam at home, um, I didn't go to any games last year. I've never seen us win a Grand Slam. So I don't know. I'm particularly excited about it. Yeah, this middle weekend is, is great. Like yeah. That one weekend off makes you realize, oh, Jesus, how much I love the Six Nations. When there's there's no Six Nations on, like there was there's provincial matches. Uh, it was like, I was just... This is uh, another alley of sidebars I'm about to mention. And, like, that was the first league game that Leinster have played in 46 days. Between, like, our last league game uh, was before the 17th of February was the 1st of January. So there's there was two cup games in the interim. 
but like it's it was an incredibly long break for a lot of players. If you're not in the 23 for those games, like that's you just had seven weeks of of no games. Um, so like there has been a there's been a, a shortage of rugby in that there hasn't been like this is the middle of the rugby season and like for for like a number of weeks there wasn't like a game like we were used in the old in the old like uh, pre URC whatever was Pro 14 or Pro 12 like you'd have these games that might be on you know Sunday afternoon or something when uh, like a second string Leinster would play Treviso or Glasgow or whatever which I used to love so the the week off uh, in the in the Six Nations really sharpens your taste for the Six Nations. It's such a well-laid-out tournament. And Wales... Funny, I always think it should be two, one-off, two, one-off, and then a final finale. Yeah. I, I always think it's, it's like, why do you have that one in the middle? Because, like, like, it's like bit of momentum, pull breaks, but a bit more momentum, pull the breaks. Then it's finale, so you're all just thinking about, oh... Okay, maybe... Yeah, I haven't considered that. Well, it'd be loads to change. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a particularly like I I like you. I enjoy the Welsh match. Um, it's it, there's always there's always bite to it. Uh, I I like beating Wales a lot uh, when we do because we like if you look back over a lot of our players, uh, like our longer established players, Sexton Murray. You look at their win-loss records, a lot of them are about 50-50 with Wales. We've lost a lot of times to Wales. Uh, like we'd have, there's, there's players who have, like obviously most players have a losing record against New Zealand. Uh, but a lot of our players have win records against, like including South Africa, against France. A lot of them would have because, you know, we were, France were pretty ordinary for the, the guts of a decade. But Wales has has been a 50-50 game a lot of players are like you know played 11 1-5 lost 6 or 1-6 or lost 5 so there is there's rivalry and um, and a real there's been a real back and forth now Ireland have the upper hand at the moment and I would I've, I'd love I'd love to record a cracking win over them Thunder's in there <laughs> That'll knock the wind out of him. Some of the fans not happy with that. Referee blows for half time. Heartbreaking news. Off the rugby wire. When I saw it this morning, I have to say, I thought it was the right decision. Dan McFarland is leaving Ulster by mutual consent. Um, the reason I think it feels like the right decision is that this season, while Ulster are not favourites to win anything, is by no means a write-off. And it looked like if he was staying, you were going to write it off. You'd just be waiting for him to leave at the end of the season. Oh, I, I think, yeah, I think that's a good summation of it. Ulster are not in an unsalvageable position. They're played 14, won 7, lost 7. They're a point five zero team. Uh, They're going at 500, as they say. Going at 500. So... I think it was a true mutual consenter and that one side might have been a little further over the line than the other, but they were both, they, there was a, it, it was. No one was enjoying it. 
No one was enjoying it. Well said. I, I think it's a relief for McFarland. I think he would have I think he's been frustrated in the job for about fifteen months. I think that that frustration has been all too obvious. I think that it's uh I can't use the word poisoned. I I, I mean oh there's a lot that McFarland did right in his time in Ulster. Like his league the, the finishes that he produced in the league were very good. Um he introduced a really good style of playing um earlier in his in his tenure he's got a good squad that he's put together um he trimmed away a few guys last year like you I mean he's not been flawless but I, I think if if you look at his legacy you go there's far more pluses than minuses but unfortunately his communication style is sardonic which is not what you need uh in that sort of role not that sort of role that that role like a a head coach role, a head of a club role, and I, I think that he's struggled with the depth of his coaching panel. So Dwayne Peelan and uh, Jared Payne both left Ulster, and if you compare to the rest of the provinces. Maybe Ulster, or sorry, maybe Connacht, a bit of an exception, but like Connacht when they had Friendy there, like Pete Wilkins was there as as well. Um, I think Muldoon was there for the last bit of Friends. Have I got that right, or did Muldoon come in? Yeah, Muldoon came in afterwards. Muldoon came in afterwards. Um, but like in, in Leinster, it's Leo Cullen plus Stuart Lancaster. It's Leo Cullen plus Jack Nienaber. Like you've got two serious guys at the top. In Munster, it's Wig and Prendergast. And Leamy's there as well. And, like, Munster had more coaches beforehand. But, like, it's... I really get the feeling with both that it's... Like, it's a double-headed eagle um, in in Munster and Leinster. It's that Tyrolean, Austrian, <laughs> sort of uh, Habsburg, uh, Habsburg family vibe. <laughs> I think you got... What you're talking about there, uh, Jordan Shakiri doing a little bit of a Kosovar riling up the Serbians. And like what it put me in mind is uh what Ronan O'Gara talked about with uh Fanning a few weeks ago. And he says, Look, there's no doubt about it, there's a lot more detail needed to see to succeed at test level. O'Gara says, I'm convinced of that. He says, For the club game, so much of it is really trying to and he goes, Well, especially in France, which is the only place I can comment on, and New Zealand, what you're really trying to do is get boys playing for each other. Maybe that applies to every club in the world, but it's easier said than done. That's where I think the theming used by Scott Robertson with the Crusaders becomes a point of difference. It's about storytelling. It's about the narrative you want to chase. Um, and it's, he talks about there being 70 people involved across the club on that journey. Um, and then, as it happened, that was in the same week that... Um, Oops, that uh, the Klopp handed in his retirement. So really, like, what Agara is talking about there is engendering that emotion and that energy. And then Klopp said in his managerial style, he goes, like, his direct quote was, my, my managerial skills are based on energy and emotion, and that takes all of you. If I, I, if I cannot do it anymore, stop it. And you go, like, that's at... The, pretty much absolute top level of professional sport, like managing a Premier League team, Champions League team, Champions League winners, Premier League winners, um, on a much smaller budget than some of your competitors. And he, like, like it doesn't get any more 
uh, authoritative when a guy like Klopp says it. And that that was the bit, that's really been the bit that's been wrong at Ulster for the last 15 or 16 months. So I, th- I think I think it'll be a relief all around. I think Ulster will get a bounce from it. I'm very curious as to what they replace him with because I do think that they need some sort of director of rugby kind of figure in there. No, you need, they need and director of rugby. I think you need like a guy who's a head coach. And it's it's kind of curious, you know, because you look at Liverpool again and you go, okay, was it Mike Edwards was the sort of the, yeah, he was sporting, the sporting director? director? So he did an incredible job. And the sort of the intimation coming out now is that he left because Klopp started having more power. And like the Klopp is like so charismatic and so capable that like he just sucks the oxygen out of it. So even though Edwards is really good, Kloppo ended up at China and him. Was it war took over then? Yeah, he lasted a year. He lasted a year and then Schmadka. Schmadka. I was trying to remember yeah. that. I knew it as a middle up. European, but he was only ever going to be there for a year. Yeah. So y- you kind of it's you'd wonder is it a, a like how how true is it? But then again, like you see the guys that I can't remember the guy's name from Spurs. You see guys who have signed really good players. Like some guys are definitely good at talent ID, definitely good at putting a squad together. And I think there's there's just such an element to getting your your sort of getting the profile of your squad right, like figuring out who do you who do you let go, having the bandwidth to look at this sort of stuff. Like who do you who do you keep? Who do you let go? How do you balance your budget? How do you manage all that? How are you going to manage your minutes? Like a lot of the stuff that you've talked about is that if you've got a wise old head looking at that, that'll benefit you. Um, but then you need somebody who's got, the, you need the vibes man who's also like a very good technical coach. That's your ideal sort of situation. And again, like you look at what Farrell did, right? Farrell brought back Mick Carney. And it was something that we'd have talked about years ago when they got rid of the Irish manager, manager's role. Then they, I think they, they replaced it with Dino. Then they got rid of it. And you're just sort of going, there's something missing here. Like you, you can't have just had somebody like this for so long that he wasn't doing anything. Like he must've been doing something. So like Mick Carney is back doing essentially what is now the Mick Carney role because he's owned that for, it seems like over a decade. I think it is over a decade. Um, but he also got O'Connell in as a, like a completely new role. Paulie wasn't replacing anybody. And that that benefited because there's just, there's so much to think about. Like it made Easter be a better coach because he didn't have to think about doing two things. He could just specialize in doing one thing. So I, I think Ulster have been thin on that. I think that McFarland suffered as a consequence and he just, maybe he ran it, maybe he ran out of energy. I, yeah, I agree with that. I think he did run out of energy. I think he was burnt out by the end and bad-tempered. And like you're halfway through the season and you're running on fumes. Um, I think the players probably got tired of his um, tired of his way of communicating. Like there was, you mentioned before that there was sort of both sides bad-mouthing training in the press, which is. Like training is a huge part of your life as a pro. It's what you spend most of your week doing. And if training didn't matter, people wouldn't do it. Like training matters a lot. Uh, like Dan, um, some people can choose to hold on to belief 
because it suits them or it suits a bias or prejudice that they have. And in this regard, I would say like how some people hold like farmer strength. Oh, that's the real strength and weight room strength isn't real. And to that I go, if farmer strength was like superior to what you got in a weights room, the Kansas City Chiefs would train on a fucking farm. <laughs> you know? So people can choose to believe that and they can choose to believe that game time minutes are the only thing that's important. It's not true. So, like, training is important. Spending 25 hours training compared to basically an hour and a half playing, there's a huge disparity. So if your training isn't going well, it's what you spend most of the week doing, you're not going to perform on match days. So if you're not, if you're sick of hearing something or you're sick of not getting picked or other people around you are sick of not getting picked, that is going to have a knock-on effect on the overall mood in the camp and results are going to suffer. Because uh, the match day is the culmination of the rest of your week. Um, so I think it's I think it's a really pragmatic move for both parties. I think that McFarland had come to the end of the road. He's been Ulster's longest-serving coach in the in the pro era. That's my understanding. You were saying, Andy, he's probably got the best winning percentage. That's what I read earlier today. Yeah, he's got the best winning percentage. So he did a big job at the start of, of changing players. He did a big job at the end of last season. Now, there are two different circumstances in that. He was inheriting somebody else's squad uh, at the first time, and the second time he'd allowed the squad to go, or he'd bloated the squad himself. Um, the contracting element is a big issue. You should like the, the, the director of rugby model suits Irish provinces very well because you... There's only so many players, you, if you're a buying club, there's only so many, you, so many players you can buy. There's only so many players you can buy from. So you constantly have to have one eye on the future. If you, like, from within your own system. So if you've one eye on the future and you're the head coach and you're doing that, you've one eye on, on your own job. You need two eyes on your own job as a head coach and it's better to have two eyes on the future, somebody else doing that. I think uh, just from the various conversations uh, relating to uh, other clubs, Liverpool mentioned amongst them, Munster, uh, Leinster. I think my feeling is that it doesn't actually matter what the specific division of labour is. It's just that the labour is divided between different people and that um, every, the people who are doing jobs that they're like focused and motivated yeah, on. Yeah, and they have a good working relationship between yeah, each other. Yeah, so that, so that they combine. Pointing in the same direction. So um, it's not, so Leinster don't have, uh, they have Leo Cullen as their head coach, but he's not, he's by name their head coach, but he sort of acts as the director of rugby. And for years they didn't have a manager. Munster used to have a manager. Sean Payne was their manager. Leinster had a professional players committee instead. You know, which well, we got used to be as well. Yeah, but but there they, they were different roles, and there yes, was like, they were. They were uh, what what was being done by the manager of Munster seemed to relate a lot in many ways to what the professional playing committee was doing in Leinster. So I ju it's just that there's there's a lot of ways of organizing your operation. They don't all have to be the same thing, and. Um, Whatever was happening at uh, at at Ulster, it doesn't it doesn't seem like they had 
um, enough energy in the building to get all the jobs done. Yeah, and you know, the, like the loss against the Ospreys is last minute loss by a point. Like that's that's just the straw that broke the camel's back. The thing that's the thing that's really ended this uh, contract is getting pumped in the European Cup. That has taken the wind out of Ulster fans' sales and taken the wind out of the organisation's sales. Players, uh, elected officials, permanent staff. They're going, we got, we got pumped in Europe. We don't, like, we don't belong at that level. You cannot look at those results and think, oh, that's just a blip. But you look at those results and you think, Ew. you look at the playing staff, though, and you know, go, it's not a bad squad. No, it's not. Like, there's so much talent specifically URC level talent, I would say, with lads who have potential to go higher in that Ulster squad. Well, totally, because they're missing so few players. Yeah, and but I, one thing which I think has been telling for me is like Kitsoff has been playing down to that level. Kitsoff is a great plow. 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 <laughs> a true plow. He has been... A plow's plow. <laughs> <laughs> playing shit like he's a tough hard working you mentioned to me before you took a special line and when the Stormers played Leinster down in, in uh, the RDS and you were saying this guy is never on the ground or if he's on the ground he's right back up off the ground Kitsoff has been dr- he's played the worst rugby I've ever seen him play for Ulster like he, the, the malaise has spread to him who like South Africans I would always think of as great blows <laughs> 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 but, um, but like it's got to him that's a bad sign so that's that's like he hasn't been there a long time he hasn't been sitting on his laurels he's come in after winning a world cup when players are when they're on they're on cloud nine like i always think back to when stransky was playing for leicester uh after winning the world cup and he was untouchable brock james playing butch for james playing for bath sorry butch james yeah just like they're on such a high they can do no wrong it's like after you've won the cup and you go out and you go like just play the best rugby of your life you know if you have like a you're playing a torn team after you've won the cup playing in an ad for pepsi or something like that you're just throwing the ball around and it's sticking and it's sticking everything works so he's gone from that super high to just looking like 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 just playing terrible rugby so there is uh there's a malaise which has spread quickly and effectively like it and it's something that they the Ulster executive, possibly, possibly IRFU involvement. I don't know, but let's why not speculate? Uh, no, 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 let's. <laughs> yeah. So I think that they decided, yeah, this this has come to a natural conclusion earlier than we expected. You have to remember that McFarland signed a contract extension to not the end of this season, but the end of next season, after he took Ulster very close to getting into the final. They lost in the last kick of the game against the Stormers in Stormertown. I uh, can't remember if that has a name. DHL, I think it's called. Um, and then that's when he signed his contract extension. And and also we were looking very, very good at that stage. But it's been downhill. Now, it's not been all downhill because they finished second in the regular season last year, but they got hammered in Europe. They had a horrific loss in Ravenhill to sale to, to, start, their, to start their campaign, never recovered. They had that big money loss in their their fixture against La Rochelle that was played behind closed doors. That was a very bad European campaign. 
backed up with another, a worse European campaign. With the home loss to Connacht in the playoffs, uh, yes, in between the URC really playoffs. I think the, the reason, the, the speculation part is that Humphreys is coming in as the, the capo to the capi of, of Irish rugby. And he's like, he's Mr. He's Mr. Ulster uh, still, even though he's, he's, he's out of the building for a long time. So Richie Murphy is going to take over as the, as the interim coach. I think it's very exciting for Richie Murphy. It's, it's a different role than anything he's been involved with so far. Like he's, he's a guy who's like a proper tracksuit coach and like he's stepping up to be the boss man. And I, I've heard Alan Solomon's name mentioned, but like that, that's purely rumors because uh, I heard it before we started reporting the podcast from, from each other. So <laughs> I, I, like, I haven't seen it in print anywhere. Start. Um, but let's just put it out there that Wayne Smith, uh, Nick Mallet, Nick and Bill Shankly are all <laughs> coaching Ulster next season. The excitement. Um, is that like, will Humphreys dig out Ulster? In, in some sort of way with IRFU largesse because, like, strategically it's important that Ulster are good. And, like, it definitely is. Like, there's no doubt in my mind, Munster be, and Rory McIlroy, uh, Munster being winning the league and being more and more competitive benefits Irish rugby. There's no doubt about it because you're just picking from a bigger pool of competitive players. Like, if James Hume starts playing well, if... Uh, David McCann's career progresses if Tom Stewart Tom O'Toole rounds off a few things in his game if if, if Tom O'Toole fulfills his athletic potential all of these are good results for the Irish rugby team if Robert Balakoon starts playing in the sort of way that Andy Farrell wants to play all of a sudden Ireland go to having a quick backline just by having Robert Balakoon involved I mean I would say maybe one of the most significant failings of Ulster is that two of the kind of players we're talking about with that God-given, incredible athletic prowess. We keep on talking about Robert Balakoon and Jacob Stockdale, and they're like defensive catastrophes in this sort of sad team, rather than them fucking, fucking lightning fast and like scoring loads of tries. Yeah, great question. It's the point is that rugby has that, like it's not American football, you have to play offense and defense. Balakoon made an amazing break against Harlequins. Pure balance and pace put together. And then the next thing, he just makes a horrific, he makes a horrific defensive I, mistake. I am like convinced that those kind of things, obviously maybe those players aren't brilliant at defending, but like those kind of like cock-ups come with uncertainty. They do. And uncertainty L- about your, everything in, in, your, in your process, in your mind, in your like, uh, in your, your actual on-field role and stuff like that. I yeah, think. and a lack of concentration. Yeah. So yeah. too many, like, not being properly focused for the game. Sometimes that's a player's fault. Sometimes that's a coach's fault. Sometimes, most times, it's a combination of two. Um, underperforming players has been a problem for us. So, like, that was another item which played into McFarland's departure, is that Ulster had, like, it only in the fourth time in the history of Irish rugby, Ulster didn't have somebody for the, for the French game in the match day 23 because they'd played so poorly in their last match. Guys who might have been in the mix were like, oh, we're not picking you after that shit show against Harlequins. Um, so that my opinion is that that will have played into. Oh, certainly it does. Yeah. Certainly it does because like, it's, it's really hard to look good 
in in such a malaise. It's an exciting move for Richie Murphy. Um, His coaching, yeah, coaching is coaching is coaching is different from playing. So, uh, you know, to go back to the point that you were making, with you've got weapons and playmakers, but you have to look after players. There's no one looking after you as a coach. Like as a coach, mm-hmm. you've you've just got to earn it. It's it's too hard. It's too real. It's it's down to work. Uh, it's obviously down to personality and to sort of energy and emotion on, on all those sort of things. But like that, it's it's real stuff. It's grown up stuff. Like being a good player is just genetic lottery. Like you know, grand you can train hard and all that sort of stuff. But most of these guys are just bigger, faster, more Great coordinated balance. than than the general population. And you don't really have to grow up until you retire. Uh, whereas coaching is real. Like you've 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 got to be resilient. Um, you've got to have a number of sort of adult factors about you, and you just you, you can't be cosseted through a pathway as a coach. So it's a big opportunity for Murphy. Is does he want to go down that path? Uh, you, you almost have to if you've been involved in in the pro game for as long. It's um, I suppose the the thing that we know we know about him is we know the age of his kids because uh, one of them is playing for the twenties and one of them is is you know sort of a, an aspiring or a burgeoning pro at Leinster. So like his kids aren't in school anymore. Now maybe he's got younger kids than that. I don't know how many kids he has, but they're not going to be they're not going to be sort of you know moving from primary to secondary school. Like they're they're pretty much done. So. Murphy's at that stage where, in terms of family life, he can move. Like, I mean, he, he can make a go of Ulster, and if it doesn't work out and he can get a job in England or in France, like, he can go for it. You know, he doesn't need to consider the sort of the education. So it's, it is an exciting move for him. And as you say, like, his, his teams play well. He's won Grand Slams at underage level. Uh, his teams would play good rugby. He's been involved with Joe Schmidt. He's been involved with Stuart Lancaster. Uh, Andy Farrell was obviously the defence coach when he was involved with Ireland, so he's been involved with Farrell. So like he's he's had a lot of exposure to good people. There's a lot of people he can call on, and it's it's an exciting opportunity. Whether he's the long term solution for Ulster is really I, I don't know. Like it's it's very soon, and it's kind of curious to see who else is available um, and how much money Ulster have. But mm. it's it's a great move for him. The other thing was, hark back to what you said, you made a great point there. Like There are so many stressors coming at you as a coach that they find a weakness in you. You know, they find a weakness. If you are too much, uh, if you won't delegate correctly or if you enjoy winning too much and hate losing too much, if you can't maintain a level here, that's... You're, you're hit, there's so much stress in you. You're like a dam and there's water pushing at every part of you. If there is not necessarily a weakness, if there's some part of your personality that it can get at, it'll fucking get at you. Oh, yeah. Like if you don't like disappointing people at contract time and you have the power over contracts and you're giving guys contract because you think you might, and it might be a positive thing, you might always see the best in people and go, this guy could be, if he gets this right and this right and this right and gets this other two things right, he could be a great player for us. And you go, and somebody else might just say to you, you're asking him to change seven things about himself. You might be able to change two of them. Like, this guy, we can't give him a contract. It's not going to work out for us. So there's so many parts that can go wrong when you have so many responsibilities. 
Like, it's a really fucking tough job. It's not just sitting down. Like, it's not just like, oh, I can't wait to pick the team. Like, it's not, it's not like what, what like armchair selectors like us do. And this is, how, this is why he got it wrong. My team was right. Well, I think we should pick more players from my team. <laughs> With no, no objection there. <laughs> you know, so all of, all of these things, like, they're, and they're not necessarily personality flaws, but they're like, there's pressure points that all of them get hit. You know, it's a hard job. Yeah. It certainly, yeah, it certainly was looking extremely difficult by the very end. Yeah, and just like, looked painful. And just it? like I said, it's just like, this just seems like a good decision for everybody. Yeah. I'm not available, mate. <laughs> <laughs> sweet, oh. sweet little gig in town, can I? <laughs> And he was a Catholic, the ethic ran through his bones. He lived alone with his mother, collecting gossip and toys. Every Sunday when he went to church, he'd kneel in his pew and he'd say, It's work, all that matters is work. He was a lot of things, what I remember the most. He'd say, I've got to bring home the bacon, someone's got to bring home the roast. He'd get to the factory early If you asked him, he'd have told you straight out It's work No matter what I did, it never seemed enough He said I was lazy, I said I was young He said, how many songs did you write? I'd written zero, I'd like to ten You won't be young forever You should have written fifteen It's work to make things big people like it that way and the songs with the dirty words make sure you record them that way and he'd like to stir up trouble he was funny that way he said it's just work and he sat down to talk one day he said decide what you want do you want to expand your parameters or play the museums like some dilettante I fired him on the spot He got red and he called me a rat It was the worst word that he could think of I'd never seen him like that It was work I thought he said it's just work And he said a lot of things I start them all away in my head Sometimes when I can't decide what I should do I think, what would Andy have said? He'd probably say, you think too much That's cause there's work that you don't wanna do It's work The most important thing is work It's work The most important thing is work <laughs>